Well, thank you for once again joining me as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and today we are continuing in chapter 3. In the last episode, we started chapter 3, and we discussed the serpent. We talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, kind of what that knowledge of good and evil actually represented. Uh, And we also discussed Satan's method of attack, one that he still employs today. And I should have mentioned in the last episode, but I, I just simply failed to do so, is what I believe to be one of Satan's most successful tactics yet, and that is to simply convince people that he doesn't really exist, that he's not real. And that's a brilliant strategy, and it has worked on countless people. I pray it doesn't work on you. So last time we completed verse 6, where Adam and Eve had both just eaten from the forbidden tree, which brings us now to verse 7. And verse 7 reads, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Again, this verse is so familiar to most of us that we just read over it without pausing to consider exactly what's going on here. So let's pause and take a fresh look at this. And it says that their eyes were open. Their eyes were opened all right. But rather than bringing them the promise of being like God, like Satan had promised them, and knowing good and evil, it brought them shame. God desired that humanity would choose to follow his morality, but now Adam and Eve are destined to live in a state where they will now live by their own morality, you know, their own code of ethics. And it says that they were naked, and I think I referenced this last time as we say in East Tennessee, they were naked. But that Hebrew word is arum. It usually describes someone stripped of protective clothing and naked in the sense of being defenseless, weak, or humiliated. And so they were stripped, they were deprived of all the honors of their previous state, in a sense. They now have an awareness of guilt and of shame, and their spiritual death is evidenced by their alienation from both each other and from God. You see, their separation from each other is sort of evidenced by their need to use fig leaves as barriers from one another, and their evidence of separation from God is seen how they will hide from God amongst the trees in the garden. See, the fig leaves concealed, but they didn't really cover, meaning Adam and Eve didn't confess their sin. They simply attempted to cover up and hide their sin. And some people say, look, this is the very first act of religion, and that religion is man's attempt to cover himself. And is this really so much different from what we do today? I mean, we go to church, we join a church, we participate in the rituals and the church liturgy and, and the traditions, and we can appear a lot of times to be very religious. But it's important for all of us to remember that religion is not what saves us. Remember, Jesus told the professional religionist of the day in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And this is exactly the situation Adam and Eve find themselves here, trying to cover their sin with external trappings of their own efforts, but not addressing the problem and the consequences of their sin. 
Now, we may not be using fig leaves today, but that's not because we aren't still trying to cover our sin. It's just simply that, you know, in our modern world, we have so many more options to choose from in an effort to cover our sin. I mean, we can use our church attendance to help cover our sin. We give and we volunteer and, you know, we count for ourselves righteousness based on our deeds and our works and our act of kindness. And all of those things are good in and of themselves, but none of them will cover your sin and separation from God. I mean, if you're counting on any of those things to save you, you're in the wrong religion. Christianity is different from every other religion in that it's not a works-based religion. That's one of the things that separates it from every other religion on the planet. Almost every other religion is works-based, meaning at the end of your life, you sort of just hope that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds so that you know maybe you sort of have a, a net good deeds balance. The problem is you still haven't been held accountable by a perfect and holy and just God for your bad deeds, your sin. So you still have a huge problem. And later in chapter 3, we're going to see what God thinks of our attempt to cover ourselves, just like Adam and Eve tried to do. We're also going to learn right here in chapter 3 that there's only one way to truly cover our sins. By the way, speaking of fig leaves, isn't it interesting that Jesus cursed a fig tree? I'll just kind of let that one lay right there. And we're going to move ahead to verses 8, 9, and 10. And verse 8 reads, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So Adam hid himself. Hiding themselves, if you think about it, it's an admission of their guilt. But how foolish, I mean, how ignorant, really, to think that you can hide yourself from the presence of God. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. In other words, there's nowhere that you can hide from God. God is everywhere. That's what it means when we say that God is omnipresent. Look, you can suppress God's calling. You can ignore it. You can pretend that he's not there. But don't fool yourself by thinking that you can hide from him. I think it's interesting that in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, we read that then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains call into the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Wow, that's what it's like when you see and hear God coming. So can you imagine how Adam and Eve felt? Just like in Revelation, nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide from the accountability and justice that's about to be enacted by God. And here's a public service announcement. We all have it coming. My suggestion is to admit your guilt, repent, and turn to the one source who can offer you a pardon based on a price that he has already paid for your sin, and that's Christ Jesus. One thing to note here is that God didn't just abandon Adam and Eve because of their sin and because now they're separated from God. No, he, he didn't abandon them. He came to them, which demonstrates his love for them. And God actually calls out to Adam. He asked him, where are you? 
I mean, this isn't because God couldn't find Adam, like he lost him in the garden somewhere, he didn't know where he was. God is asking Adam in order to get a response from him. You know, some people believe the question maybe wasn't about his actual physical location in the garden, but it was about his spiritual condition. In other words, where are you, Adam, spiritually speaking? Or where are you, Adam, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with me? Either way, one thing to remember is that it's always God who does the seeking. It's God seeking and calling out to man, not man calling out or seeking God. And here, God calls out to Adam, just like he called out to Abraham. God called Abraham. Abraham didn't call out to God. Before God called Abraham, what was he doing? Abraham was an idol-worshipping pagan in the Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iraq. God called out to Jacob. What was Jacob doing? Jacob was on the run. He was fleeing. God called out to Moses. Moses was a fugitive, wanted for murder. In John 15 16, Jesus even tells his disciples that, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You see, it is always God who does the seeking. Adam tells God that he was afraid and so he hid himself. Bruce Waltke is a professor of Old Testament theology and Hebrew, and he mentions that actions that are motivated by fear are not motivated by faith, and so they cannot please God. But 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So Adam being afraid here, his sense of fear demonstrates that it's not from God, but that's a result of his sin, and it's born out of not trusting God. But honestly, I, you know, I can relate to Adam. You know, as much as I know that fear cannot please God, I've had that same feeling many times, just like all of you have. You know, whether I fear for the future or for my children's health and safety, fear of the unknown, doesn't matter. You know, there are people who try to explain fear as uh, some sort of evolutionary byproduct based on our fight or flight responses. But the reality is that fear, in the context that we're discussing it here, is brought on by a lack of faith in God, and it's the result of being separated from God. Verses 11, 12, and 13. Verse 11 begins, And he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. I love the way verse 11 here has God asking Adam, Who told you you were naked? It just kind of has that ring to it of a parent child situation where the child maybe reveals one detail too much and now they know that they're busted. And notice first here that right here, and then as we continue to read, you're going to see that there's no confession by Adam, no apology, no repentance. What we do see here, though, is the worst the lamest, the most pitiful excuse you could think of. Adam actually blames Eve. It was her fault, God. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. I mean, you can almost hear it in Adam's voice. I didn't ask you to send her to me. And what's even more here is that Adam, by extension, is actually insinuating that some of the blame is on God. It was her fault. Whose fault? The woman that you gave me. In other words, if God wouldn't have brought Eve to him, he would have been fine. So it's also God's fault. 
Adam is actually trying to make God an accessory to his own sin. So it's Eve's fault, and it's God's fault. But Adam never takes responsibility for his own actions. And people are still using this excuse today. It's always somebody else's fault. It was my parents' fault. It was my teacher's fault. My coach. I was framed. My boss. It's the system. My environment. It's always somebody else's fault. You know, one thing that never ceases to amaze me is man's ability to rationalize. And then God asked Eve, what is this that you have done? And what does she do? The exact same thing Adam did. She passes the buck. She shirks her responsibility just like he did. The serpent deceived me. It was the serpent's fault. See, here we go again. It's kind of like the Flip Wilson uh, comedy routine in the 70s. The devil made me do it. Not taking responsibility for her actions. You know, some people say here that Adam and Eve are already demonstrating the impact of Satan's influence because here they're already distorting the truth and accusing someone else and Adam ultimately is even laying some of the blame in God's lap. But James 1.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So sure, Satan tempts us, but as James tells us, we are dragged away by our own evil lust and our own desires. And the scary thing is that James continues to tell us then that after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You know, psychiatrist Dr. Abraham Tversky says that, look, human beings need four things. They need air, food, drink, and someone to blame. And I want to leave you with this final thought. When Adam sinned, his first reaction, his natural response was to flee and to run and to hide from God. This was his response because he was aware of the justice of God and he knew what God had promised would be the penalty for sin. But along with everything else we discussed, it also tells us one other thing. It tells us that Adam had no idea that forgiveness was even an option. But so that I don't make this episode longer than I want to, and also so that I don't stop in a really awkward place, I'm going to wrap this episode up right here. In the next episode, we're going to finish chapter 3, and we're going to discuss the punishments that are implemented by God, and we're also going to be introduced to the first hint of the Messiah. For some of you, I can almost guarantee you will hear something in the next episode that you may have never heard before. So I hope you'll join me. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I know you have a lot of other options. Until next week, pray and ask God to help you see and have the same perspective of sin that he does.